What the newsroom liked was a good, dirty vicar story. So said Gerald Priestland, once the BBC's religious affairs correspondent. Or, one might add, a story about people in funny hats and cloaks in front of a cathedral. Anything, in other words, rather than take religion seriously, which the BBC Radio 4 Sunday programme has done for the last 50 years. Religion is at the root of so much conflict in the world, not least in the Middle East, which is convulsed by it yet again. But it's also at the heart of so much of the best that we do. I presented Sunday for 12 years, until 2010, when Edward Sturton took over. And now he, and Sunday's formidable producer for many years, Amanda Hancocks, have produced a book about the programme. Ed has also published, earlier this year, another very personal book called Confessions, Life Re-Examined. Quite a dangerous and painful exercise, you would have thought, for most of us. I look forward to talking to him about both works. Ed Sturden, uh, welcome to the podcast. At the beginning, in your introduction to this book on Sunday, A History of Religious Affairs Through 50 Years of Conversations and Controversies, you quote approvingly the late Dennis Potter's conviction that simply ignoring religion is, quote, an insult to the central struggle of man. Yes. You obviously feel that quite strongly. I do. Um, Firstly, I should say thank you very much for having me. Slightly daunting being interviewed by my distinguished predecessor (laughs) on the Sunday programme. But it's very nice to be able to talk about the book. And yes, I think that that whole passage from uh, Dennis Potter, which is so lively and full of unexpected thoughts and ideas, uh, is actually one of the kind of gems of of the archive that we we, uh, discovered for writing to write this book but i think that's a very obvious and clear point that we may in this very curious uh, corner of northern europe think of the world in secular terms but for the vast majority on this planet irreligion continues to matter very profoundly and to be a very important motivating factor and i think if we ignore that we ignore it at our peril because it means we don't understand the world as we should Uh, And we also, as Dennis Potter suggests, we're cutting out an enormously important part of what it means to be human. When I looked at the book, and it is absolutely fascinating, of course it would be to me, as you say, having presented the programme, but also in the picture it gives of the controversies over the past 50 years, uh, you will actually, in the book, you go back further in your introduction, talk about John Reith and so on, and some would take the view we haven't just seen a reduction in the centrality of Christianity in this country, We've seen a reduction in religious interest and affiliation over the last 50 years. Do you think that's true? No, I don't, actually. I think the opposite is true, in a way. Clearly, we've seen a reduction in the uh, prominence and faith in the mainstream religious faith. It, It is remarkable. I don't think I put this in the book, but that in the 1960s, right up to the years before Sunday was founded, the vast majority of producers in the religion department of the BBC were ordained clergymen in the Church of England. Something you know, inconceivable today. We do, in the book, talk a little bit about Donald Coggan's call to the nation back in 1974-75, I can't remember which, but um, which provoked 28,000 letters to Lambeth Palace, many of them thanking the Archbishop of Canterbury, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, for this intervention in the nation's affairs. Again, that's unimaginable today. So there's no question that adherence to the mainstream churches, particularly the Church of England, has diminished dramatically. And I think that the influence 
direct influence that Christianity has on people's lives has also diminished. But I think in terms of attitudes to religion in general, if anything, rather the reverse has happened. There is a hunger to know among our audience, to know about the broader religious picture. And that's partly because we've become a richly diverse religious landscape in this country, and partly because people look at the news and they see religion popping up in the most unexpected places and ways. And I think a lot of our audience realise that, that, that they've got to understand the religious impulse if they're going to understand those stories. And we're talking in the middle of the... And, and this, would, this would obviously be, you know, I was going to say, I think you were going to say it actually as well, this obviously applies to the Middle East at the moment, but I have to... I am quite shocked by the, I suppose, religious illiteracy of a lot of newsrooms. But then I look at my own um, understanding, and for example, I don't think I understood anything about the Sunni-Shia split, which was so fundamental, is so fundamental for yeah, politics in yeah. the Middle East elsewhere, until maybe I was 35, 40 or something. I wonder, where was I that I didn't notice that? And again, uh, the, the question of Israel and, and the relationship of Jews to that land and so on. Fundamental to understanding things, and yet not something which most journalistic colleges or whatever teach their journalists. Well, isn't that... Well, there are two reasons for that. One, we are a very secular culture. Journalists, by and large, are probably more secular than most, and instinctively many of them operate on the principle that there's something slightly dotty about people who have religious faith and that it's not something that really needs to trouble them very much when they try to understand stories or write running orders and I'm, I think I've always said that I think you have said things along those lines yourself in the past there's no question that there is a natural bias against religion as a serious subject in in many newsrooms including I think probably the BBC's um, on the other hand uh, I think that you can be excused for not knowing about the difference between Sunnis and Shias until your um, late youth if if that's what it was because that story really didn't press itself on our attention until, I suppose, I don't know, maybe Ayatollah Khomeini and the Iranian Revolution. Yes, that would be 79 when he returned. I mean, yeah. I, I wondered when I was watching that, and I was a, an editor actually at the time, and thinking, why are people making a bit of a fuss about this man getting on a plane and going to Iran? And <laughs> one of those moments when you realise, I am not equipped to do the job I'm doing, well, I'd better do some homework quickly. But I mean, I wrote this, you also quoted the book, Gerald Gerald Pleasant, a mm. wonderful um, BBC religious yeah. affairs correspondent, some years uh, we probably heard when we were very young, saying, what the newsroom liked was a good dirty vicar story. And I would <laughs> say that's absolutely true today, plus, if possible, pictures of cathedrals and men in funny hats standing in front of them. I mean, uh, we you, are still usually have... men in funny hats arguing about sex as well. I mean, yeah, usually about of... sex, which is all the church, all the religion is about, of course. Um, and I still feel that there is, after all of these years within the BBC, I mean, there isn't now in the BBC a head of religion, for example, and ethics across the board. There's nobody setting a strategy. I don't know what the strategy is anymore. There's a religious um, editor, but working solely in news. So you wonder, where will the um, strategic view come from, which will say understanding religion, not least in world affairs, is fundamental and therefore we'd better make sure we are tooled up to do it. Well, I have to admit, I'm, I'm always a bit sceptical about strategies 
in journalism. I think that's probably because I have a, a rather different background. I began my journalistic life in ITN, which is a much smaller organisation than the BBC, much nimbler in many ways, and which is which doesn't have time to worry about strategies, if you know what, what I mean. It, it just gets by every day and tries to do its best on stories. And I remember my, one of my first sort of outings into religious journalism was when I was a trainee at ITN and John Paul II visited Britain in 1982. And somebody said, oh, that trainee went to a Catholic school. He must know about it. And I got called over and told to write briefing notes for the reporters and presenters on the meaning of transubstantiation and so forth. Um, so very, very, Good luck, by the way. Good luck on that well, one. Yeah, one of two people said, well, if you manage to do that, you manage to do something that no theologian has ever achieved. Um, yes, exactly. But, but you take my point. You know, there was a need suddenly to know about the Catholic Church. There weren't many Catholics at ITN. Uh, you know, go to the bloke who seems to know and and learn about it now because we've got this big event coming up and we need to know about it now and i and i suppose although i've joined and now have worked for many years for the bbc i still have a bit of that um slightly buccaneering bit of my soul intact that sort of itn uh, s- swaggering you know do it at the last minute get it really right but don't worry too much about strategy in me that's okay Ed. but when you're faced with young producers who don't know, not their fault, they just don't know. They look at you blankly sometimes and think, are you serious? Whatever. And, you know, when you're trying to explain the importance of things. I mean, they haven't perhaps gotten the stage of life where they, if not accepting religion, are drawn back to the thinking about the last things, you know, why am I here, what's the purpose no, of life, how no. shall I live, all of those things actually, which what religion really is about. Um, but they haven't got there and they look at you slightly blankly. And, and I just find it baffling that, you know, we don't, uh, it, it hasn't sunk into everybody, that what you believe yourself is irrelevant, whether you think it's true is irrelevant. Vast sections of the world, increasing actually numbers of people in the world, consider themselves religious. And you cannot be a journalist properly unless you understand it. And you certainly now can't understand this country, and particularly the religious people like Muslims and others, if you don't bother to find out what they care about most. I think all of that is true, but I have a slightly more cheerful perspective on it, I think because I am lucky enough to work, uh, leaving aside my work on the Sunday programme, I still, as you may know, still do bits on The World at One and The World This Weekend, which are part of that kind of central empire of sequence programmes on Radio 4 that, you know, drive the day-to-day agenda. And I am endlessly impressed by the young kids i hope they won't mind me describing them like that but the young people i work with because it seems to me they've got absolutely the sort of hunger and curiosity and healthy skepticism and love of the job that i like to think i and my mates had when we were all starting off all those years ago and they they don't dismiss things they ask they want to know we're talking about the middle east moments two ago they want to know about hamas they want to know about its you know what most of us would consider its distorted religious inspiration so my kind of day-to-day experience i think gives me a slightly more as i say more cheerful perspective on that question that's the difference between really you and me i think i am half class empty you are half class <laughs> well, no, but, but I, what i would say is this i think if you sent them off to learn in a kind of module of some kind, sort of real religious literacy, you know, they'd fiddle on their phones. But if they're confronted with a huge story, like the one that's unfolding, the great tragedy that's unfolding at the moment, they, they want to learn. And, you know, they do. 
Well, um, I, I think if you've had any connection with the Sunday programme or listened to it, this book is riveting. But what about those who don't? I mean, why should the non-religious or say one of your young journalists read this book? Well, um, <laughs> um, well I, I hope that it's not just directed at a religious audience. I hope it's directed at people who are people of the kind we've just been talking about, who are curious about religion because they realise that you need to know about it to understand the world. Um, I don't know what sort of response you used to get, uh, Roger, when you were presenting the programme, but there are two that I particularly enjoy. One is the occasional vicar who says, I make sure to listen before I write my weekly sermon, which is always a compliment. More important people who are atheists or members of a completely you know, non-Christian uh, religious tradition who say, I listen every week because I learn things that I didn't know and there's nowhere else in the media that really tells me that stuff. And I suppose that's the audience I'm aiming, we, Amanda Hancocks and I, are, are aiming for in this book. And what did you learn when you look back? Of course, you knew the last 12 years that you present the programme before them because you occasionally presented it yeah. when, when I was doing it. But when you yeah. look back, what, what stood out for you and said, oh, I didn't quite realise that, or oh, that gives me a rather different perspective. Is there anything that really comes to you, really stands out to you? I, th- I think the, the extent of the revolution in our religious landscape, the kind of precipitate decline of church-going and particularly of the influence of the Church of England, um, I found myself, I have to say, depressed by some of the theological arguments that we cover about things like women priests or sexuality, because when you look at the the archives as a whole, you see people going round and round and round over the same you know, ground um, in what almost seems like a a hamster-like way, if you like. It was. I mean, it just so frustrated me, that, because we'd often have discussions, far too many of them I now realise, about homosexuality yeah, or sexuality yeah, or women yeah. or marriage, whatever. And instead of just saying, this group starts from an interpretation of the Bible, we're talking mainly now about evangelical Protestants, they start from this concept. This other group starts from a separate idea of rights. Yeah, yeah. Given where they start from, there's no point having a discussion because there's no middle way yeah. unless each recognises the other's position. And I sometimes sit there in the middle of these discussions thinking, I know we have know. to do yeah. this, yeah. but but we're no. not getting anywhere no. at I all. No, I feel, I, I feel the same. I mean, it's interesting to, to hear kind of another presenter's view on what it's like because the other <laughs> thing that I found, and perhaps this wasn't quite so... Well, it's certainly there, but, it, but maybe it wasn't quite so prominent before I arrived full-time, as it were. But I found that sometimes those endless revelations about abuse and the way it just went on week after week after week, particularly the period about sort of 2010 onwards or thereabouts, I just found I, I didn't want to go to work sometimes. Uh, it, I mean, of course we had to do it. We had to do it, and it was right to do it. But it was just grindingly miserable sometimes. It was. It was. And the other thing that you can't, you know, it was, um, I don't want... I suppose we'll both say, say we're partisan on this one. But, you know, at one occasion you'd find out what the churches were actually doing at the grassroots level. You know, they were feeding people. Uh, you know, in the middle of Newcastle, yeah. they were the people who were going around checking on older people. All the good things that were done, as it were, at the ground level, uh, we hardly touched. Yeah. Partly because we didn't have the resources to report 
So we tended to work from the studio and re so-called representatives would come into more be down the line. But we didn't report on what uh, the best, if you like, religion was doing. What we reported on on the whole was when religion was, I won't say going wrong, but in the midst of controversy. And that in itself gives a rather distorted picture of the day-to-day -day reality of life lived by those who have a faith. I was very lucky, Roger, um, going back to my days in telly in the late 1990s. I was commissioned to do a series on the modern Catholic Church from the Second Vatican Council until today. And, well, you will remember those days as well. We had big budgets and we went absolutely everywhere. We went to Africa, we went to India, we went to Sri Lanka, uh, we went to, obviously to Rome, we went to America, we went to Latin America. It was an amazing experience. And the great thing that I brought back was a feeling or realisation that in most parts of the world, um, the Catholic Church is dealing with the things that really matter to people, social justice, education, health, all that stuff and that the idea of just talking about sex which as we said earlier is something that appears to preoccupy the churches in this country and in, in Europe that that grossly um, underplayed the, the value of religion on the planet as a whole and you're right you know I, I think you're right you can get locked into this rather um, reductive and um, diminishing view of religion but at the, that's the danger more generally, isn't it? That, that in a sense, if you cut back too much in reporting, you tend to accept other people's agenda or there's a row about this. You then represent that row as fairly as you can. But in a way, you've lost your own ability to go out there, find out what's happening, and actually, in some ways, if not change the agenda, put additional things on the agenda. Reporting has been the defining experience of my life i absolutely agree that the more of it you have the better you always learn things when you go out and meet people and go to a place you always bring a different perspective uh and you know i don't i don't run the budget but i completely <laughs> agree and, and actually we you know we've, we've done and as, as you did occasionally we've done um uh, outside broadcasts and I've always found... And, of course, you did a lot of other documentaries with a yeah. particularly, I thought, brilliant producer called Phil Pegum. Indeed. And uh, just the two of you. It doesn't cost a lot of money, no, just the FS. No. And, unfortunately, <laughs> you published books about that afterwards. Um, but can I, can I move across to you uh, about, more about your personal life? Because earlier this year, you published another book uh, entitled Confessions, Life Reexamined, yes. which is a very brave thing to do. Why did you want to? re-examine your life well if, if you don't learn in the course of your life there's sort of not much point is there um i mean i i, I find as i said reporting has been terribly important to me and the privilege of being paid to go on learning all my life change attitudes reevaluate things that i thought were settled in my mind has been I mean, it's been an incredible privilege. It's what's made it all worthwhile, really. But you're quite unsparing in, um, how shall I put it, in you looking back at your earlier self in terms of the assumptions that we are. I mean, you know you were sometimes called 
posh ed by people and you know that even your penguin introduction to your book talks you about being born into privilege <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> which is rather remarkable i mean one of your ancestors was imprisoned in the tower in 1605 in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot that, i noticed that, anyway that you went to Appleforth. you were head boy you went to trinity college cambridge you were president of the cambridge union society you were editor of the student magazine you were at itn uh, trainee and by 1990 ITN diplomatic editor etc etc and in Trinity I mean I went down the list of all the people you were well I don't say you knew them very well but were there at your time Charles Moore, Dominic Lawson, Alistair Campbell, Oliver Letwin, Justin Welby um, so is that you were both born and educated in privilege is that a fair statement? I mean, absolutely it's a fair statement I mean I, I, I don't think I was I hope I wasn't um, lazy about that you know i mean you did have to get into cambridge <laughs> obviously you in those days um trinity was all male so the competition was a little bit easier because 50 percent of the population were excluded by virtue of their gender which is something one should remember when one congratulates oneself of having um, a cambridge education of, of that era yes no i was very very lucky i had extraordinary I was taught in an extraordinary way, and, and I, I cherish that. At literary festivals, when talking about that book, I do encourage people to record their memoirs because I think it's an incredibly valuable thing to do, to have first-hand testimony. What, do you think that's because later in life we have a tendency to remake ourselves? We do, we if do. If you like. If we don't like the things, something, so we will pretend mm. they didn't happen. We'll fashion a version of ourselves which we then believe, well, but actually isn't true uh, that's absolutely right and, and i follow up that suggestion with the advice if you're going to go back and look at your diaries and letters when you were a teenager and a young man or woman have a stiff drink beforehand because you might not like the things you find and the things you didn't find because and people will nowadays we went talking about sex abuse and so on there you were at at Ampleforth, uh, and there have been some terrible stories, and sadly yeah. a lot of them true, about abuse that went on in Ampleforth. You were head boy there. You were not aware of them, were you? You've said that a number of times. I had um, a very strange experience, which, which is quoted in the book, uh, immediately after the report of the Child Abuse Commission was published on Ampleforth, and I was having dinner with a couple of old school friends, both very successful. One, a, a done very well in the city, made a lot of money, the other distinguished public servant. And we said to each other, you know, this is a load of nonsense, isn't it? We don't remember any of this sort of thing. And then in the pause of the conversation, the distinguished, knighted, no less, public servant said, mind you, Father so-and-so did try to snog me. And he said, the funny thing is then I had him to lunch years later with my wife and children. And I think reading my some of my diaries and things i think there was a bit of sort of repression of memory a deliberate sort of blanking out of aspects of the the culture which which should have which which actually probably did shock one but which one slightly sort of put to one side in one's mind i mean things like my housemaster telling us all that if we were tempted to masturbate we should put a rosary around our hand it's sort of kind of weird stuff really good grief it is but you don't even need to have the imagination and experience to know what it meant and there's a lot of people asking for example why they didn't spot people like jimmy yeah. savile or uh, in a lesser but very serious way Stuart hall and people like that and rolf harrison and you need an imagination or an experience sometimes uh, well you need the experience sometimes and then you often need better imagination than i have to understand what was happening so you look back and you 
you can't quite explain to people why you didn't work it out, but you didn't. Well, I think some things were sort of normalised. You know, we were a bunch of teenage boys isolated in a valley miles away from normal life. From I mean, you could go into York on Saturday afternoons occasionally, but basically you live together in this very remote, rather false atmosphere. And I think there was an acceptance. And again, it's probably something I sort of blanked from my memory, but it's there in the diaries and it's true. I think there was an acceptance that in those circumstances with everyone's hormones sort of bubbling away older boys having sex with younger boys was probably going to happen not desirable but it just was there so i think you know things like that and that was you know that just was part of the atmosphere and and if you think back it's awful because we're talking about 18 year olds and you know 13 year olds it's 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 and which and, and certainly you know the use of authority in those circumstances i just think i sort of put that out of my mind in the way I remember the place and probably in the way we all lived. Because there was so much that was admirable about it, I suppose, and you, I know one of your heroes was uh, uh, the former um, Archbishop of Westminster, Cardinal Basil Hume, and, you know, I, I admired him greatly too, not least by the fact that when I he had a bad temper, but he always, when he had got cross, he then went pink <laughs> and then apologised to you. <laughs> he, was a, he was a lovely man in many ways. Nonetheless, he was the abbot there, abbot there wasn't he? And he, oh, it just, you just wondered, had he any inkling? He used to talk how wonderful he was, you know, having drinks with the boys and all of that sort of stuff, but did was he aware? He was a saintly figure. Well, Do you think he was aware? No, that's the awful thing. We, we know that he was and that he chose to ignore it in one particular instance which was that of a priest a monk who was teaching at the prep school that in those days was attached to Amforth and was just across the valley uh, a boy complained his parents raised it with the headmaster and it went to Basil Hume to the abbot they concluded in the end that the monk in question was was abusing boys but instead of going to the police they pushed him out to a parish now that was the way things were done in those days. Oh yes, and it was done in the Church of England. Yeah. It was you know, because protect Mother Church. Yeah, that's yeah, the first well, thing. Protect you know Mother Monastery as well in this case. And I I do find that thinking back very, I find it very difficult to uh, deal with because there aren't many real heroes around. And as you know, as a journalist, you you very often learn that people who appear to be heroes aren't heroes at all. But Basil he was rather to me rather a hero and I did the last I think I did the last interview with him before he died and it was a characteristically kind of generous gesture it was there'd just been a an attack a horrible attack I think nail bombs were used on a gay pub in Soho so Basil Hume comes out onto the Today programme knowing all the kind of sensitivities about the Catholic Church and homosexuality and very clearly condemns this dreadful event and it was when he already had cancer, he admitted, told the world he'd had cancer, and you could hear his sort of tiredness and his sickness in his voice, but he came out and did it. And I, that just seemed to be typical, both of his incredibly clever judgment about when to intervene and when to say something publicly, but also of, of his, his moral courage, really, because um, I suspect there were a lot of Catholics that found that rather an uncomfortable listen. Mm. Um, and I thought that one of the saddest things was that when I talked to him, that perhaps I, I, maybe six months before yeah. he died, um, 
it was very, and I'm not sure if he knew then, maybe it was a year, how ill he was, uh, but he desperately wanted to, he'd offered his resignation, you have to do it at 75, yeah. I think, to Rome, and he made it very clear, he wanted to go back to Ampleforth and spend his last days there, and the church didn't let him, mm. or rather, it didn't respond in time, and therefore he had to, to die in Westminster. Um, looking, you know, looking back, uh, you, you were very careful in the book, uh, uh, Confessions, not to talk about your much about your private life and uh, your children, whatever. But I, I do know your present wife a little bit, uh, Fiona Murch, <laughs> and she's a ferocious. Uh, no, not ferocious. That's wrong. Feisty. <laughs> I would say she's a feisty feminist. So when I look at this change in your, not change, but changing perspective in your book. Doubtless she deserves some of the credit. She certainly does. And, and, and uh, she was also, I have to say, an extremely good editor um, and, and read it all and told me when I was being stupid and stopped me saying things uh, like, you know, that story about what you did with the Elizabeth Arden cream when you got frostbite on your... What's the, what's the word uh, Prince Harry uses? Your Todger, if I can say that on your illustrious podcast. <laughs> um, Please do. Um, yes. You know, she, um, Roger has a Hodger as well. Yes. <laughs> not, not. I hasten to add that um, that uh, anything like that was was in the book. But she she was very careful about cutting out anything that I might find embarrassing later. Well, I think it's very admirable to uh, to to expose yourself in many ways. <laughs> not quite in that way. You're doing. And what about? I mean, I, you know, what's next? What are your ambitions? Now, I know you've been on the record about the fact that you've. You've got a, a form of cancer. Uh, you've said, oh, I don't reckon I'm going to make eight to But you do have a number of years left to spend professionally, hopefully lots of them. What are your ambitions now? Um, I, what do you want well, to do I, now? I really, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I mean, I more, spend more and more of my time writing, I think. I mean, that's, I'm quite quietly proud of the fact that I've got brought out two books in one year. This year. Well, you got at least we've written at least twelve, haven't you? I mean, I have, altogether. Yes, absolutely. And I've got. I've, I you're cross though. I noticed that you haven't. Your son has beaten you to the first work of fiction. He did. Yes, yes. Well, he's now a banker, though. So, it's <laughs> <laughs> crazy he's, space he's, for you again. He's, he's, he's uh, yeah, probably a much more sensible career. But I, I, I'm, I'm playing with an, a, another book, which is rather a complicated way of doing a bit of history about France, and is going to require a good deal of thought. Uh, but but a mixture of writing books and doing the sort of broadcasting I do, I find suits me very well. I don't know whether you feel this, but I found that as one sort of gets more mature, I hope, in one's career, one ceases to worry about titles and, you know, job positions. So I've, I've had lots of great titles and jobs that I've really loved, like being a presenter of the Today Program, diplomatic editor at ITN, Washington correspondent for Channel 4 News. I, I really enjoyed doing those jobs. And I found it's just the business of day-to-day -day broadcasting that I enjoy, and I don't really care what I'm called. Do you know what I mean? Is that... Well, there is always the podcast after that, but I strongly recommend you that you try and keep the seat you're in at the moment because <laughs> that way you have a bigger audience. But you can't stop asking questions, can you? But what about the big question, the biggest question, I suppose? You, yeah. uh, let me quote you saying, I cannot quit, quite shake off the idea that life is a journey with a moral destination. Yes. Now, what... Would you like to elaborate just on that? Well, I think that's one of the things. I know there was lots wrong with Ampleforth, and we've talked about the, the the worst side of it in a way. But I think that's one of the things I learnt from the monks, um, all of whom, I think, to an extent, were motivated by that idea. I mean, if you're going to give up so much in your life 
in, in to, to to serve God, then then I think that 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 is part of the motivating factor, and I. I hate the idea that you can complacently sit back and think I've done it all. Um, and, you know, I know everything. I don't want to learn anymore. I don't want to change anymore. That's completely antipathetic to everything that I believe in, everything that I hope I can um, be proud of having sort of aspired to while I've been living my life, if, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's not, it's not that I necessarily want to pass the O-level at the party at the pearly gates, it's more that I'd like, by the time I do die, to feel that I really had given it my all, but also that I'd learnt and that I'd kept that idea of the importance of values and and hone those values, changed what they are, but held, held on to that sense that they really matter. And I think that's one thing that religious education and upbringing does give you. And where does this leave belief? I mean, with regard to the BBC, I would call myself a critical friend, but in the end, I'll be right. in the uh, trenches to defend it. Um, <laughs> when it comes to Christianity, and in particular Roman Catholicism, you would be in the trenches in the last resort, would you, to defend it? Um, I would, but I wouldn't... I, like you, I think critical friend's a very good phrase. I do very strongly believe that God gave us uh, judgment and intellect with the intention that we should use them and sense of justice as well which is very much part of the way one um, some of the areas where i might part uh, company with the church but i think uh, i'm just so soaked in catholicism that it's just me and trying to you know drag it out of me would be a hideously painful process so i I just think it's it's easier to acquiesce. It's my sort of my watchword. You know, I just give in and believe. It's just easier, um, and it's helpful. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, it does provide you with a, a structure and approach to life. Well, it's um, thank you very much for being interviewed on the podcast. Thank you for the two books, Confessions, and also the Sunday program, which I read with. Such a conflicting range of emotions, I can't tell you, but it's riveting. Riveting. There's some very nice pictures of you yeah, in there. Well, well, I'm not sure about that, but anyway, Ed, thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Richard Sambrook, director of the Centre for Journalism at Cardiff University and a former director of Global News at the BBC, where he worked for 30 years. After the events that we've been witnessing recently, there will be no shortage of issues to discuss with him. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, please do consider supporting us. It costs less than a cup of coffee at £1.99 per month. And you'll also receive a weekly newsletter in which I discuss my thoughts on the week's interview. All you have to do is to sign up at patreon.com forward slash bwatch. You can find this link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us. And I hope you will. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quincenti. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>